Romans 9, starting in verse 19. You say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Our Father, I I ask now for hearts that are unlike the heart in verse 19, skeptical and cynical, rather submissive and humble and teachable and broken and thankful and childlike. Trembling, This is the one to whom I will look. He who trembles at my word. Forbid, Lord, that we would elevate our own human sense of values to the level of becoming the judge of the Almighty. And grant that we would bow and learn what it is to be creatures deserving of punishment and spared by Jesus Christ through faith alone. Lord, be honored in this service as we continue worship over the word. Make me a faithful expositor of your word. Now I pray. Let there be a transaction in this moment of transformation out of conformity to the world and into conformity to the word that would magnify Christ. That's why we exist, Lord. That Christ might be made much of in the universe over all things. In his name I pray. Amen. One of the advantages of being a pastor who's called to understand and to exult over the Word of God in preaching in front of a covenant people called Bethlehem. One of the advantages of that is that I must stand before a people week in and week out whose children have died or worse, are spiritually dead, whose spouses are critically ill or worse, spiritually hard, whose health is failing and whose jobs are in jeopardy and whose finances are strapped and who battle depression or love somebody who battles depression. I stand week in and week out before a people who know from experience that this world, the real world in which you live, is shot through with sin and pain and Suffering and futility, that is a great advantage to me as a pastor. To be called to understand the Bible 
and give exposition to the Bible in front of people like this week after week is a great advantage to me. It's an advantage because I can't afford to play academic games. I can't afford to endlessly suspend judgment over important matters. I can't be neutral about great realities, not if we're going to worship here in preaching and not just tickle our intellectual fancies. If we're going to worship over the Word, I will not be able to be neutral about great realities. There's simply too much at stake every week to just entertain you with trivialities and platitudes. Life is hard. You don't come here to hear me speculate. You don't come here, I hope, to just pick up on another human opinion or to get a pep talk, how to divert your attention from your problems so that you will feel better when you leave. And it's a great advantage to me to, in this context, in front of real life, suffering people, Because the big truths of the Bible either help or they don't. And I hear about it. And that's good for me. It's a great blessing to me to do theology. It's what it means when you try to understand how this page relates to that page. It's called theology. How does what's said here work with what's said here? It's a great advantage to me to do theology in front of a covenant community of people who live with the problem of pain, who live with the problem of evil, for whom the truth of God's sovereignty and pain and evil are never far away from each other. Never far away from us. I now have about 125 pieces under the heading, The Sovereignty of God, in my filing system. Many of them are letters. Letters from you and letters from around the country over 23 years. They are letters about not only the biblical faithfulness and truthfulness of the sovereignty of God, but about its practical, powerful, precious effect. When the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ rules the world in every detail, including the evil and the good and the suffering in our lives. One of the reasons that I don't shrink back from teaching on Romans 9 and all of its Strangeness to 20th century, 21st century, American, human, fallen ears is because for 40 years almost now I have taught and preached under the conviction that God is absolutely sovereign and supreme in all things and have found it to be biblically true and have found it in hundreds of people's lives to be profoundly practical and faith-sustaining and life-giving I have seen the sheer, absolute 
holiness, majesty, sovereignty of God over all evil, all human willing and all acting become the anchor for storm-tossed souls, the refuge for frightened people, the rock of stability when everything around us gives way, the hope when the most precious things in your lives have been taken away from you, the most precious things on earth have been taken away from you, confidence when the worst of miseries, that the worst of miseries, will in fact work for good, it would be very hard to pull me back from this truth. One mother of a 22-year-old college sophomore who after two years is still in a coma from an injury on a skiing trip where my son Barnabas was with him, wrote to me after she read a Star article, and she said, your statement, quote, in reality our pain and losses are always a test of how much we treasure the all-wise, all-governing God in comparison to what we have lost, brought me to my knees again. It has been very hard to give my treasure back to the Lord. As you say, quote, this is a very precious discovery because it enables us to repent and seek to cherish Christ as we ought. Isn't that amazing? I could get you her name and give you her email if you, if you wanted to talk to her. One of the reasons I read some of these letters to you is this. People's responses to the truth of God's sovereignty over all things are often not what you think they will be. The fact is, the views of God that you and I think people will be helped by in the midst of crisis and suffering are very often not the views of God that they need or are helped by in those moments. You may think, surely at this moment, some soft, some tender, some non-theological cushion of, of warmth is what's needed at this moment. You might think so. And then you find them saying, sometimes inarticulate and sometimes in very non-articulate ways, I am so deeply shaken. I am so shaken to the other foundations of my being that nothing but a massive dose of divine majesty and sovereignty will do me good. I heard a father say one time to me in March, I won't tell you which March, over ten years ago, a march after three horrible months of seeing and hearing the stories of the abuses of his daughters by a sexual predator uncle. John, he said, it is the raw holiness and majesty and sovereignty of God that I heard the first Sunday of January that has gotten us through. Is that what you would have expected? 
Is that what you would have prepared to say? Is that how you would have gotten a heart ready to deal with the venereal warts? On a three-year-old? It's not what you think. It's very often not what you think. I met a woman from India a couple years ago down at the cove. And she said, uh, thank you for what you said here on Job. Can I write you a letter? I said, sure. When she was born, her disease was misdiagnosed. It was a readily treatable disease. It was misdiagnosed and... And uh, they treated her for the wrong thing, and she was paralyzed and crippled. By the age 14, she had had 21 surgeries. She walked through her grade school and junior high years being scorned and abused the way sometimes cruel kids are. Crippled, she said. And then at a fellowship of Christian athletes banquet, that she was invited to go to. She was saved under the preaching of John 9. This disease, this blindness is not because of your sin, but for the glory of God. And it landed on her that maybe there's a purpose. Maybe it could all be turned in God's sovereign design for good. And she surrendered utterly to the Lord and married and had four miscarriages and her second child at two months old died in her husband's arms. And she wrote at the end of that letter, I have read many books on suffering, but they are often so man-centered and nullify or at least diminish the glory, majesty and sovereignty of God. It is radical thinking to say that God wills and ordains our suffering, not just passively allows it, hoping to make the best of it for us. As I have grown in my walk, I can see that nothing in this world happens apart from the sovereign will of God. I wonder if you have considered that I'm asking you to consider this. What is coming in the 21st century is so catastrophic and so unprecedented in this country that everything we ever knew of earthly securities will fail. And that this God of Romans 9 This God that in our three centuries of Disneyland prosperity and security and comfort that has been so easily marginalized and reshaped to be our entertainment God that maybe in this new century precisely this God will rise to meet the challenge of Islam. That this God will rise to meet the challenge of false teaching abundant in the church of God. That this God will rise to meet your need and be big enough for your suffering. I wonder if you have considered that your God may not be the God of the Bible. That the little inherited God that you got from American evangelicalism just may not be the God of the Bible. I wonder if you have 
considered that possibility. Is your God big enough to manage the 21st century that is coming upon us? How many songs will change in the gulag? Romans 9.19. The listener to Romans 9 raises an objection. If you've closed your Bible, I hope you'll open it again. Romans 9, verse 19. The listener has raised an objection. And the objection goes like this. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? What has Paul said to bring forth such a reaction? Let's read verses 17 and 18 to see what he has said. The scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he says, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And it's that last phrase that prompts this objection. If God hardens whomever he wills, if God has the right to decree who will become rebellious, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, the God that Paul has been portraying in Romans 9 is absolutely sovereign. He decides who will believe and undeservingly be saved and who will rebel and deservingly perish. Before they were born or had done anything good or evil, verse 11, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. I make one vessel for honor. I make another vessel for dishonor. And he raises the question, or somebody does, why is this right? And he gave answers in verses 14 to 18, and we've spent two weeks on those answers, at least. And now, he gives two more answers. Two more answers to the question, how can this be right? How can this absolute, divine, unconditional election, this sovereignty, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I have mercy on whom I will, and I harden whom I will. I make vessels for honor, and I make vessels for dishonor. How can this be right? And he gives answers. There are two. And I'm simply going to state them. I'll try to restate them. And not defend them. And then close with a a reading from Jonathan Edwards, who for me has been the most helpful in understanding this passage and its larger, enormous significance for our lives. Here's his next argument in answer to the question. A potter has authority and right to make whatever he wants out of clay. Let's read verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. Now, the answer to that question, he assumes, is yes. He has that right. The argument is basically, potters know better than clay what to make. I say that because of verse 20. Verse 20, who are you, O man, O mere human? Who are you, O mere human? A mere piece of clay. To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, the argument is very simple here. Humans don't know enough to elevate our sense of right and our sense of wisdom and our values to the level of pronouncing judgments upon the Almighty. That's the argument. Who are you, mere human clay, to dictate to the Almighty Creator God what He should or shouldn't do with His power? Think of the audacity of it. And until that lands on you with stunning force, you probably will be the objector of verse 19. Here's the second argument. This is a deeper argument. In fact, I think it is the deepest argument in the Bible in answer to the question, why is there evil? And why does God ordain it and govern it? That's what's being answered in verses 22 and 23. It is the deepest answer that the Bible gives. If it is not sufficient, the Bible has no answer. And we should just put our hands upon our mouths and be silent. But I'll sum it up and then I'll read it. Let me put it in my own words first. It is right for God the potter to make of clay what he wills. It is right to unconditionally have mercy on one and harden another. It is right for God to be absolutely sovereign over all wills and all running because in acting this way, he displays most fully the glory of God, including his wrath against sin and his power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy know him most completely and worship him most intently forever. I'll say it again. In acting in this way, God displays most fully his glory, including his wrath, against sin and his power in judgment so that the vessels of mercy may know most completely and worship most intensely the full whole God forever and ever. Now let me read it to you in the words of the Apostle Paul. Verse 22. It's a rhetorical question. And the assumption is that the answer is nothing can be said in objection. He says, what if God, 
desiring to show his wrath. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Don't very often do this, but I must do it here. The word although in the New American Standard Bible is dead wrong. It really let me down. Ironically, the literal translation yields to the NIV, the ESV, and all the other versions. It's just a participle. It leaves for you to decide whether an although should be put there or a because should be put there. So I'm just going to go with the literal participle and warn you that if you take the although, it will trip you up and turn the meaning inside out. I'll give you a reason for this. So you you don't have to depend on me and knowing Greek. This verse 22 is reshaping verse 17, Pharaoh. God is desiring to show wrath and power. He is drawing that out of the Pharaoh illustration. And you know from reading verse 17 and its Old Testament context, it is not... Although I desire to show wrath and power, I raised you up. That is not what he's saying in verse 17. He is saying, since and because I desire to show my power and my wrath for all of Egypt to see and all of Israel to worship, I raised you up and ten long plagues I was patient with you as I hardened your heart. I'm going to just read it like Paul wrote it, and you can decide. What if God, desiring, and I would paraphrase it, since he desired, but I won't. I'll just read what's the most literal. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's the end of the question. It breaks off. What if God did that? Assumption, no objection can legitimately be brought Now, there are three purposes of God's action in those two verses. And the first two serve the third, which is very important to see. Purpose number one, verse 22, to show his wrath against sin, desiring to show wrath. That's God's first purpose in what he is doing. Second purpose, verse 22 And to show his power, presumably in judgment, as we saw in the case of Pharaoh. So those are the first two purposes, to show his wrath and to show his power. Now, in verse 23 comes the third purpose. And the way it is worded, the first two feed into the third and bring it to pass as the main purpose. Namely... All the self-revelation of God in in wrath and, and power serves to display the glory of God to the vessels of mercy. 
So let me state again what I think the last and deepest argument of the Bible is as to why there is wrath and why there is hardness and why there is evil with a sovereign God decreeing and governing all things. It's because, now I I just ask you to judge, is this a fair restatement of verses 22 and 23? You agree with it? That's your heart's call. I just want to know, is this a fair restatement? In acting this way, God glorifies himself most fully, including both wrath against sin and power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy can know him most completely and worship him most intently forever. Now, Jonathan Edwards wrote the most important book, I think, that exists outside the Bible on the freedom of the will. I commend it to you. It's available. This quote doesn't come from that. It comes from one of his essays on the decrees of God. And I want to read it. I'm going to read it carefully and slowly. And I ask you now, as we close, to put on your thinking cap and to put on your focus and listen and judge as God enables you to judge whether this comprehensive statement is faithful to Romans 9. Whether we like it or not is quite irrelevant at first. Whether we yield to it is infinitely relevant for our lives. Here's what he wrote. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth, that every beauty should be proportionably radiant, that the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority and dreadful greatness, his justice and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed, so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of his goodness and love and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. 
There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. How much happiness soever he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired, and the sense of it would not be so great. So, evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world, because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of him be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionably imperfect. End quote. Not a 21st century statement, but I believe a biblical one. I think it's a fair paraphrase of verses 20 to 23 of Romans 9. So I ask you this. Is God less glorious because he ordained that there be real evil, real guilt, and real punishment? And Paul's answer is no, just the opposite. God is not less glorious. His glory would not shine truly and brightly if he had not decreed and governed all things in the universe that we live in with all of its evil and pain. The effort to rescue God from his sovereignty, the effort to rescue God from his sovereignty by denying the foreknowledge of sin or by denying his ultimate control over sin is pastorally devastating and false to the scriptures and undermining to faith and hope in the calamities that are coming upon this world. I don't think it's an accident that God timed in the life of this church, Romans, over the last five years to bring us into the 21st century with a healthy dose of the sovereignty of God from the ninth chapter of Romans. I don't think that's an accident. What is coming upon this land and this world in this century is beyond anybody's imagination. And I just ask you, I plead with you to get on your face before God and say, Is my God the majestic, glorious, sovereign God of the Bible who will stand forth triumphant and sufficient for this century? For those who submit to him and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I'd like to close like this. Pronounce a blessing over you. And then have us just sit quietly for about 30 seconds or more. And when there in Roseville you hear the piano and when you hear, hear the piano then you're free to linger, think and pray, or come to the front and let the prayer teams pray with you.
or go with a sovereign God into a very fragile and uncertain week. Let's bow. Father, come and be our teacher. If I've said anything amiss, if anything is out of biblical proportion, if I have been unfaithful to the teaching of Romans 9, make that known to your people, I pray. You be their teacher here. You be their guard. I am an under-shepherd. You are the shepherd. I try to feed faithfully in the pasture's green, but you know the grass better than I. Confirm the truth and cancel the error, I pray. And now, may the majesty of God and the weight of his glory and the grace of his dying and rising sun rest upon you forever.